Anyway, I hope you have an amazing week so far. We're going to be in uh, James, the book of James, a little bit today. James 4 and 5, 4 and 5, but we're also going to be kind of all over the place. Uh, with this topic of a deeply formed life, we're in this message series called The Deeply Formed Life, where we're looking at how God shapes us into the person that he wants us to be. The big idea is that God loves you just the way that you are. God loves you just the way that you are. Some people think, well, God's mad at me, or God, you know, God sees all the stuff that I'm doing, and, and he, he doesn't want to have any relationship with me. That's not true. The Bible says when we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So God loves you just the way that you are, but he doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants to shape you and form you, and he wants to, to make you more like him. And the struggles that you have today aren't meant to be the struggles that you die with. Isn't that awesome? That God can mold you and shape you, and the stuff that you're struggling with today, you can actually get over and get past. And God can move, and you can move on to bigger and better things in your life because God wants to shape you into more of what He wants you to be. So, how do we grow spiritually? We've looked at this passage of scripture throughout the series. It's going to be kind of our our, our passage that, that we tied to this this for the series. This Romans 12, verse 2, and it says this: do not be conformed. To this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What the, the world there, that word in, in, in the original language is an age. Like, do, don't be conformed to this age. So this age, this world has a way of thinking. It has a pattern of thinking. It has, it has uh, ideas and thoughts and morals and all kinds of things that are trying to shape us in a certain way. And we as Christians, we need to recognize those things and we don't need to conform to them but we are transformed into the person that God wants us to be by the renewing of our mind. Last week we looked at how God transforms us from the inside out. How we examine ourselves, how we look at our lives and we, we look inside of us and we see how, how God, uh, how sometimes in, in our own lives, like, like the, the stuff is happening on the inside. How many of you guys have ever gotten really, really upset with someone and it really, they didn't deserve the level of, of upset that you got with them. Does that ever happen to you? Happens to me. And then you trace it back and you're like, what's going on here? And all of a sudden you have to turn into like this detective and you're like, oh well, you know, maybe I, on the inside, maybe I'm, I'm struggling with unforgiveness at this thing with work or there's a situation that's completely out of my control and, and all of a sudden now I'm thinking out on my kid. Or maybe, if you're like me, maybe I just haven't eaten like I should have today. You know, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm getting upset, irritable, and grouchy. But we look on the inside. We evaluate what's happening on the inside. We examine our works, our ways, and our faith to make sure that those things line up with Jesus. Make sure that they line up with Jesus. And as we've looked at this, this series and we've talked about this world system, this way of thinking that, and, and living that's constantly trying to shape us, we realize that... We, they, they, there's a view on morality, there's a view on politics, there's a view on sexuality, there's a view on how we view others, how we interact with others, and this world or this age wants to shape our thoughts and constantly push us in a certain direction. In many ways, it's hard to see that we're, what we're accustomed to because we're surrounded by it all the time. It's hard to recognize how our world is shaping us all the time. It's 
It's just shaped. It's just part of your generation. It's part of your culture. It's part of the generation that you grew up in. There's in, in our church here, we have a multi-generational church. We have people from all kind of different things. We have the Z generation and the boomers. We have all different kind of generations in our church. One thing I learned this week, and we tested it on our kids, and this is absolutely true. All right, and I talked to some of you guys about this before service. All right, if you were born before the year 2000, and I tell you to pretend like you're going to hold up your fingers and take a picture, right? If you're born before the year 2000, you know how you would do it? You do it just like this. If you're born after 2000, again, we tested this on my kids. It works. It, it's true. You know how they do it? Hey, hold up your hands and take a picture. Every time. That's how they do it. That's how they do it. If they, they don't do this. They do this. Your world is kind of shaping you. It's like, why? What, what is this? Why would I do this? What, who got this? No, what is this? They do this now. That's what they do. And so in our world, we see like even something simple and funny like that. We, we see how what's going on around us shapes us. And family culture is the same way. Your family has shaped you into the person that you are. How many of you guys know something in your family? You just think to yourself, man, uh, my, you know, you can think that your family is a it's got a great sense of humor, you know. Your family is the family that tells jokes. Your family is the family that that, that that throws parties and has people over at the house. Your family is the family that loses their temper a lot. Your family is the family that doesn't talk about anything. We don't talk about anything. How many of you guys are like you thinking through these things and you're like, oh yeah, this is the family that I grew up in. And the thing is, is that as we're, we grow up in these environments and we grow up in these families, we have to realize that while there are some things that are fantastic that you learn from previous generations and that are amazing, there's some things that we have to realize that there's patterns that I have, that I grew up with, that, I, that have shaped me, that might not line up with how God's word is. And so we have to look at our families. And one thing that happened for us when Liz and I first got married, one of the things that we quickly realized is that we were actually merging two cultures together. Her family had a culture, my family had a culture. And, it, and, and, and we, we realized that there were nuances to this culture. And as we were building our lives together, we, we realized that, that there, was, there was just different things about us. Liz grew up in, in, in really, really rough environments. She grew up, you know, having to rely on, on things like food stamps. And, and the first time she had an ice maker or laundry in our apartment was when we got married. That was the first time she ever, like, it was there. She had to go to the laundromat. Like, it was there. And God, but God always provided for her. And so she had this really high level of faith that, you know what, I can trust God because God has always come through when I needed it, when there was no chance that we could do this on our own. God came through. That was how she was raised. That's what she was raised in. Me, on the other hand, like I grew up in my, my, both mom and dad, you guys know, they're pharmacists, and so they always took care of, care of me. They, they worked hard for what they did. And so I came into the marriage with this pressure that I had to be the one that provided for everything, that, that like I had to work hard and everything was going to come from my work. And like I didn't have this trust in God like she had. What I had was, I better get to work. 
That's what I had. And so, and so we, we had this blending of cultures and she had to, she had to learn from me about things about, you know, how, how, you know, to go about, you know, employment and stuff like that, where, where, you know, how bosses see and, and how to put your resume together and all that stuff. But I had to learn from her how to trust, how to believe in God, how to, how to believe that God would take care of me. And, and I realized that two weeks after we got married, we had our first fight. You guys remember your first fight? Couples in here? Remember the first time you had a really good one? Like a really good one. Like I'm not talking about, you know, like we're, we're disagreeing over like the, you know, where we're going to go eat, you know, or something like that. Like I'm talking about a really good fight, right? Liz and I had a really good fight. In the middle of the fight, she got up and she walked and she stood in front of the front door. We had an apartment. The front door was the only entry and exit. That was it, you know. Uh, and so she was standing in front of the door and I thought it was really weird. And I was like, why are you standing in front of the door? Like, why did you go, like, like we're over here in the living room, door's over here, why are you standing over there? And she said this, she said, I'm standing here because I don't want you to leave. See, what happened was, is her dad left when she was three, and for the 37 years that followed, and the, or 30 or so years that followed, he made no attempts at a relationship with her. And so she had this idea of the second that me and her had a disagreement that I was going to hit the door. That's what she thought. That's what she genuinely thought because that's how she was raised. And I had to tell her, look, you got to work a lot harder to get rid of me. Like, I guess I'm not going to take a fight deal. This is going to be a lot. And now here we are 19 years later that we're still together. But the thing is, is that uh, she had a way that her life was being shaped in the way that her thoughts were being shaped. You were raised in a household that had values and ideas, that had pressures and economics on it. And economics is not just finances. Economics is where you put value. So do we value this or do we value that? Do we spend money on this or do we spend money on that? Do we have money to do this or do we don't? Like there, there's value there. And this is what creates family culture. And the thing is, is that when we're talking about this, the danger for some of us, the danger for some of us is that we love our parents and our family so much that we ignore things that we don't need to ignore. Or some of us, we see issues in our lives and in our families, and we don't honor like we should. And the Bible says that we should honor our father and our mother. We should honor them. We should respect them. We should put honor on them. And, and so we can't just, as we're having this conversation about family values, we can't just look at it and say, well, they were all wrong. I don't like it or whatever. And this idea of like, I'm just going to completely rebel against what I was taught, what I was brought up in. No, that's wrong. You can't dishonor how you were raised. But on the flip side is you can't just sit there and say problems didn't exist, let's pretend they weren't there. And so when we're coming to this idea of how we were shaped, of our family dynamics, of, of, of things that we were taught, we understand that there's a balance that we have to walk in, but we have to identify the family culture that we were raised in. Why? Because that culture shaped us. That culture shaped us. It, 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 it molded us in a certain way. And we have to look at our lives. We have to say, is our lives and the, 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 what we were handed and the culture that we were handed, does that line up with God's word? Does it line up with what God says, how we should act? 
it doesn't line up with how we should live. For some of us, we were raised in a family that talked everything out. Whether you wanted to or not, you were going to talk about it. And you're just like, I don't want to talk about this right now. No, you were going to talk about it because that's the family culture. And some of others, they, they didn't talk about it, they yelled it out. And you guys know a family like that, just yell it out. We're just going to yell at each other. And maybe there's a, a parent who you avoided when they were in a particular mood, or maybe another that you avoided when they had too much to drink, then, then you yelled it out. And immediately, it's, it's almost like immediately when kids learn to walk in the house, they also learn to walk on eggshells. Or maybe your family culture was that you just don't talk about problems. If we talk about the problem, then the problem exists. So let's not talk about the problem, so the problem does exist. So we bury the problem deep inside of us, only to see them boil to the surface at the worst possible times. In almost two decades of being a pastor, I've met those who found themselves in the dumbest of sinful situations. You're like, how did you even get there? Like, what, like, how many stop signs did you run through to get to that point where you found yourself in that level of sin? It's because they matured, or as they matured, they never matured to the stage of understanding that their actions carried consequences. And if you look at it, their father was the same way, and his father was the same way, and their father was the same way. I've met other people who hated the opposite sex. They hated the opposite sex because of how there was a distrust. And in in both cases, you could tie this back to a family culture that had gone astray. Many good things can be passed down from one generation to the next. Good parenting, work ethic, finances, good finances, faith in Christ. There are amazing things that we can do to shape the next generation. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, it says this, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now, when I was younger and I first heard this message, I was like, oh man, dude, so I gotta get a lot of money so that my kids don't have to work and that their kids don't have to work and the inheritance children's children. Like, that's what I thought this verse meant. But look at the descriptor here. The descriptor here is not talking about a rich man or a wise man. It's talking about a good man. And so the inheritance is not necessarily wealth. The inheritance is goodness. It's righteousness that this man is handing down. And so we can hand righteousness down to our children's children. Righteousness can carry with it a generational impact. And so if, if you're, you know, you're young right now and maybe you don't have kids yet or maybe your kids are young, you can look at it and you can say, man, me living righteous today can have an impact on kids that aren't even born yet. Or maybe you're a little older, maybe you have kids or maybe you have grandkids and you're like, the righteousness that I live, the, the steadiness, the, the faithfulness in my life, it can have an impact on my children's children. It can carry through generations. But is the opposite true? If righteousness can carry through generations, then can sin. The Bible talks about that. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8, You shall not make yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in water under the earth. What he's talking about here is idols. It's us when we worship things, when we place our faith, our hope, and our trust in things that are not of God. Idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity 
of the fathers. Iniquity is like generational sin. The iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The idols of a generation don't typically die with that generation. Instead, they continue on. Things like substance abuse and alcoholism, drug use, extramarital relationships, even racism, it can be passed from one generation to the next. But there's hope. There's hope. If you look at your life and you're like, man, I, I, I see these things. I've seen these things that my parents did and their parents did, and I find myself doing the same thing. What hope do I have? How do I break this cycle? How do I basically unplug the cable so it just doesn't keep going down the line? How do I stop this? James 5 gives us a template for how we can move on. James 5 says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Several weeks ago, we talked about what confession actually means. It's not apologizing like, oops, I'm sorry about that. Like you bumped into someone accidentally. That's not what confession means. Confession is me calling my sin the same thing that God calls it. And so instead of saying, in my life, I'm this way because my dad was that way, and his dad was that way, and his dad was that way, therefore we just continue doing it. Instead of doing that, just kind of accepting, it's almost like a family dog that gets passed around. Instead of just accepting that about our sin, what we can do is we can confess our sin. We can say, this, this behavior that's been consistent throughout my family does not line up with God's word. It is sin. I'm going to confess it and I'm going to pray that I may be healed. And when we do this, we, we move our sin into a way where God can handle it, where God can deal with it. If he calls it sin, then I call it sin. If he calls it sin, then I call it sin. We can't stay in our sin just trying to justify it or just trying to rationalize it or just trying to accept it like it's never going to change. If there is an action or way of thinking that Jesus has died for and thus removing its guilt from you so that you can be justified before God, those same actions shouldn't be justified by you for continued use. If Jesus is taking care of it, let him take care of it. Don't say this is how it's always been. When I attempt to justify the sin in my life, I let it hang around. And it's no wonder why it lives on in families because it's never actually confessed. When I say the same thing about my sin that God does, then I treat my sin the way that God wants it to be treated. And when God covers it, or when God treats it, it's covered, cleansed, and removed. But if I don't confess it, if I say that, if I don't say the same thing that God says about it, then I guess what? I have to learn to live with it. And so if you want to break these cycles that are in your family, you want to break behaviors in your family, you want to break idols that are in your family, you've got to learn how to confess it. You have to learn how to say things about it. And it, it doesn't even need to be things that your family really struggles with. 
It can be things that are in the culture at large where you see things in the culture and you're like, you know what? I, I don't like this. I want to confess it so I'm not part of that. Right? I was when I was born, I was born in the South, and in the South, there's a lot of a lot of racial tension and things like that. Thankfully, my parents did not give that to me. Some of my best friends were, were different races, and it was just a really, really cool thing that my parents passed down to me to where I was accepting and loving and didn't look like me, didn't care what you look like. We were friends. We had I was I played basketball. Just me and a bunch of African American kids. That's what we did, you know? And, and so it was a cool thing that my parents passed down to me. But this past summer, after the death of George Floyd in Minnesota, Liz and I joined hundreds of other pastors and church leaders in a prayer walk down at the state capitol. Why? Because I wanted to pray for reconciliation in our country. I didn't see, I didn't, I didn't see it in my own family, but I saw something in my culture that I knew didn't line up with what God's word said. And so when I did that, I wanted to pray for healing and reconciliation. I wanted to pray that God would help me stand alongside those who were hurting. And in my prayer, I wanted to ask God to help me be a better brother in Christ. And realizing that looking the way that I do, I don't remember the last time that I felt racism. I don't remember the last time that, that, that I, I was in a situation where it was directed at me. But I can be an advocate for people that did that. And so it's also when you see it in your family, but also when you see it in the culture. When you see it happening in the culture around you, when you see it happening, you're like, you know what? I need to stand up and say, this stops with me. This stops with me. I'm going to confess sin, whether it's in my family or in my culture. I'm going to confess it so this sin is not able to attach itself to me. And you know what? I wanted it to, to go down the generation. I wanted to say, hey, this is going to be a generational thing in my family, too. You know, I, I didn't receive it from my parents, and I'm not going to give it to my kids. And because of that, we took our girls to this. We took our girls to this and, and, and we let them pray and, and ask God to, for healing and reconciliation. Another situation that happened to me about a year and a half ago, I was at a meeting at work, and uh, one of my female colleagues, uh, they made a great point in the meeting. A fantastic point. It was a great idea. Fan, amazing idea. I agreed with it. A couple minutes went by. And you know what I did? Not even thinking about it. I was just thinking about how great that idea was. And I didn't think that anyone else was listening to it. So you know what I did? I repeated her idea. But I didn't give her credit for it. I gave her because I gave her my idea. And immediately I thought, man, what did I just do? Why did I do that? I've never been the target of sexism. I've never been the target of, of someone saying that, 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 you know, looking at me based on how I looked and saying that I don't have the greatest ideas or thoughts. Or, I've never been the target. I've never dealt with that. But I just did that. I just basically said, let me, let me take credit for this idea. So I was, I was immediately like kind of appalled at myself. And I'm like, I don't want to be like that. I don't want my daughters to be in meetings at work having some dude be like, well, I'm just going to take her idea and make it mom. I don't want to do that. So I immediately after the meeting, I went up to the, I, in the meeting, I was like, hey, uh, this is a great idea. And Nicole said, did she, Nicole did great. Like, I immediately, like, trying to go over the top, compensate for what I just did. And then after the meeting, I went to her and I'm like, hey, I'm so sorry I did that. She was like, I didn't realize you did that. I realized I did that. I need you to know that I'm sorry. Because again, it stops with me. Whenever we confess, whenever we say this behavior, whether it's temper, whether it's uh, it's anger, whether it's uh, 
extramarital stuff with the opposite sex, whether it's cheating on your taxes, whatever it is, whatever it is that's been passed down and passed down and passed down, substance abuse, whatever it is, it can stop with you when you confess it. Sin requires confession so that healing can come. Sin requires confession so that healing can come. With a world that's constantly trying to shape us into its likeness, unless we look back to see how we have been improperly formed, we will continue to live in the same patterns. So we have to look at our lives and we have to say, well, as Jesus is forming me, there's also been a time and a season in my life where I wasn't being formed by Jesus. I was being formed by other things, whether it was my family, whether it was my school, whether it was my friends, whether it was my job, whatever it was that was running the TV, the internet, whatever it was, was forming. And I have to look at those things and I have to say, these are some ways that I was being improperly formed, that I was not being formed the way that the Bible teaches, but that the way that the world was teaching. And when I do that, I need to confess those things. Otherwise, I'm going to continue living out the same patterns over and over and over again. So I want to look at two ways, two values that our world has. And listen, this is not an exhaustive list. I would say anytime you're listening to a sermon, you need something that's like, well, they're giving, they're giving me a list of things. I would say stop and ask God, God, you tell me things. Tell me things that maybe that maybe are not on the list that that, that are that are that I need to look at in my life or a way that way that things are shaping me. But ask God to speak to you. Maybe maybe you're dealing with what we're about to talk about, or maybe there's other things and God can speak to you right here and there. But we're going to talk just for the next couple of minutes about values that our culture has that perpetuate that continue sinful patterns in our lives. And the first thing I want to say is this. Number one is chasing comfort. Chasing comfort. In the two situations that I mentioned earlier about George Floyd and about talking over the woman at work, I could have easily said, well, this doesn't really affect me. as It doesn't really affect me. So I'm, I'm just going to let it slide. I'm just going to let it stick around. Or maybe maybe I'm, I'm the one in the house now with the temper, and everyone walks in eggshells around me, so I'm, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Because that doesn't really affect me right or it doesn't really affect me like it affects everyone else. So we have this this idea of comfort. We value peace, or what we really think is the perception of peace, above all else. I mean, like it's even written in our founding document for our country, the, the pursuit of happiness. Like we want comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want to be happy. We want to just, like, I just want things to be easy. But uh, sometimes that's not what the Bible teaches us. Sometimes it says that we have to do some work. We gotta, we gotta confess. We gotta get down and dirty. We have to say the things that we need to. We need to call things out that need to be called out. In our modern spirituality, we often avoid feeling our own pain, and, and in the process, we avoid feeling the pain of others. We don't want to feel our own sin or see how that sin has affected other people. We end up chasing our own comfort or happiness, and what it does is it robs us of the reconciling work that God has called us to do. We read the parable of the thorns a couple weeks ago in Matthew in Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus says this, and the others, this is the seed that was planted in the ground, those were sown among thorns, 
they are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world meaning what the world cares about, how you're going to get comfortable, or the deceitfulness of riches meaning that if you had enough money, you would be okay. And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. And so we have this idea of if we're focused on our own comfort, if we're focused on our own happiness, if we're focused on, I just want to do things that are going to make me happy, sometimes that doesn't line up with what God is trying to do in your life. Sometimes that doesn't line up. But we have to see where, we have to ask ourselves, well, where do we put our focus? Where do we fix our gaze? Where do we, where do we look at it? We're not looking at my own happiness. I'm not looking at my own desires and my own will and my own comfort. If that's not what I'm looking at, that's not the direction I'm heading. Where should I be heading? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked before us. And he says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who started, the one who authored, and the one who perfected our faith, he, he, he endured the cross for you and for me. We fix our eyes on him. We run toward him. We make him our goal, him our desire, him our focus. And when we do that, these sins, this idea of just sin kind of hanging out and, and living around, this is like a roommate that we have, this sin can now be handled and it can be removed from us. Our wholeness is not found in getting new stuff or gathering or attaining. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke 9, 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Chasing comfort can cause sin to just kind of hang out and stay around in our lives. The second thing, and this is the one that I probably struggle with the most, is self-reliance. Self-reliance. This is a big one for me. You, you think that by the sweat of your brow, by the grit that you have, that, that you can create the life that you want, that you can put the stuff that needs to get put behind you, behind you on your own strength, on your own power, that you can get to where you need to go on your own strength and your own power. And if you would only work hard enough, or if other people would work hard enough, they would get the same thing. And while hard work is true, and while, while we value hard work, I mean, even Ecclesiastes says that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We have to understand that the work of a man's hand will never quench his thirst. It will never be enough. This is why the people look at men, I mean, like, like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, they've got more money than they ever know what to do with. What are they, why are they hoarding all this money, whatever? It will never be enough. Wherever you're looking at it in your life right now, whatever it is, it will never be enough. And so if I'm trying to, to, to do this out of my own work, out of my own value, if I'm doing this, I'm, I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to be a place where there's not another project to work on. That's never going to happen. There's always going to be something there. There's always going to be something that I focus on. And if, if, if I have to do that, then, then it's always on me to do. 
And I found this, that many successful people overvalue their contribution and undervalue the extenuating circumstances that it took to get them to be successful. This is like market conditions, government policies, luck, things like that. A while back, Liz and I, we were in a meeting of entrepreneurs. We were asking them, what does it take for you to be successful? They were all over the place, like systems and things like this, and all the systems that they were. There were other people in the meeting that were doing the same things, and they weren't successful by their own definition. And so we have to see that the road to self-reliance, this road of self-reliance, it really only has two possible destinations. If you're thinking that, man, I, by my own strength, by my own power, by my own smarts, by my own way of living, I'm, I'm smart enough to get to where I want to go, there's really only two destinations of that road. The first is pride. If it all goes well, if you ever feel like you've attained it, if you ever feel like you get there, pride is going to be a, a destination for you. Look what I did. The other, the other destination would be despair. I've done everything right, but why am I still failing? Why am I still messing up? Why is this not how it should be? When I think I'm the reason for my success or my failure, I'm standing in pride. And James 4, 6 and 7 says this, but Jesus or God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When I humbly submit myself to God, I put myself on God's side. If you want to make this about what you can do, about what you can accomplish, about what you can achieve, about what you can put behind you, about the direction and vision that you can have for your life. If you want to make it about pride, you're not putting yourself on God's side. But when you come to him humbly, when you come to him respectfully, when you come to him with honor, when you come to him this way, you put yourself on his side. And we can't dig our way out of a hole. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of your own doing. You didn't get yourself saved. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. It's not a result of works so that any man would boast. And so this is all about Jesus. It's not about what you can do. It's not about you finally getting to a place where you're comfortable and where you're happy. It's about focusing your attention and making Jesus your goal. Making a relationship with him your goal. Making him happy. Making him proud. You're running for an audience of one. Doing this. And when we do this, sin can be dealt with in our lives. We're not carrying it around anymore. We're not carrying it around from generations or from the past or from our world or from our culture. We're not carrying it around with us. Instead, we're letting Jesus deal with it by fixing our eyes on him. It's not about what you've done. It's about what's been done for you. So we confess our sins. And in John chapter 1 verse, or 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're thinking about today where there's something that, and I, 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 you look at your own life, you do that self-evaluation that we talked about last week, you look inside, you're like, man, I'm still doing things that I saw my, my parents do, that I saw my grandparents do, there's still things that are in me that, that I know aren't 
reign of God. And you find yourself doing those things over and over and over again. Listen, you still need to honor them. Still honor them. But you can say, this cycle stops. This cycle stops. We can confess our sins. 